0: Hey, good morning, church. Great to see those of you here in person. Thankful for all of you joining us online. This is a special day for us, part of just the annual rhythm in the life of this church is honoring seniors and their families. My first senior Sunday to be the preacher at Sycamore View is 2009. I'll never forget it. I preached my sermon. We honored seniors, and then afterwards, there was a set of grandparents who met me in the hallway. They didn't attend Sycamore View. They found me, and they said, young man, that was a great job. Do they always let graduating seniors preach on Senior Sunday? (laughs) Which I didn't know if I should take that as a compliment or if I should be greatly offended, all right? But but I was grateful. It's one of my first memories of Senior Sunday here. There's a story that goes like this. After creating heaven and earth, God created Adam and Eve, and the first thing God said to them was, don't. Don't what, Adam asked? Don't eat the forbidden fruit, God said. Forbidden fruit? We got forbidden fruit around here? Hey, hey Eve, we, we have forbidden fruit around here. No way. Yes way. And then God said, don't eat that fruit. And why is because I'm your creator and I said so. So God, wondering why he hadn't stopped after making the elephants, told them... Don't eat the fruit. And a few minutes later, God saw the kids having an apple break, and God was angry and said, Didn't I tell you to not eat the fruit? Uh-huh, Adam replied. Then why did you? I don't know, We've answered. She started it, Adam said. Did not. Did so. Did not. And having had it with the two of them, God's punishment was that Adam and Eve should have children of their own. <laughs> now... <clears throat> I hesitate to tell the story, all right, for a couple of reasons. One, that's not quite how Genesis 1 and 2 is told. Also, I'm hesitant to tell the story because I know there are people who would love to have kids, and they haven't had kids. What I also know is that there are moments as parents that you sit back and you think, why did I ever get into this? Or, God, what have you done to me? Or, I don't know what I'm doing. Or there's gray hair because of these kids? Or can I have a worship service where I can just focus on God because of the kids I'm trying to raise? Like, there are these moments as a parent where things are so challenging, or you go through challenging seasons, or you don't know what you do or what you're doing, but you keep investing. You just keep investing. And as a church community, it's true for us too, as we are pouring into the next generation. And one of our core values is that we strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. There are times where it's a challenge for us to know what to do or what to say, but even when we don't know what to do or what to say, through the power of God in us, we just, we keep investing. That's what we do. So open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I knew I wanted to do a seven-week series coming out of Easter, on the power of the resurrection, and I knew that 1 Corinthians 15 is what I wanted to preach on Senior Sunday. And let me just work you through five verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the first two verses go like this. Like Paul reminds people, like, this is the story we are rooted in. And it's this, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take, have taken your stand, and by this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Do you notice there's a past, present, and a future element to this? Right? So you receive the gospel, and now you stand on the gospel, and we are in the process of being saved. Now, being in the process of being saved, or working out your salvation, this isn't like God hasn't decided yet if God's going to save you in the end, but this is that journey Toward completion in Christ. This is we're on a journey knowing that the ultimate destination will bring full restoration and full redemption to us. But just think in your own life, like when it came to you receiving the gospel, who were the people God used to help make that happen? Who are the people in your life that you currently see standing on the gospel, standing on the foundation of Jesus, even when it's hard? And it's good to know that it's a multi-generational p- group of people coming from all different walks of life that we are in the process of being saved. This is the reminder that we have. You've received it, you stand on it, we're in the process of being saved. And then Paul says this in verse 3. He says this, For what I received I passed on to you as first importance. There's just one word in the Greek. It's a Greek word, "protos," First importance, utmost importance. Now, as an author, you only get like one shot to use a phrase like this in a book or a letter that you were writing. If you're a communicator and you're in front of people, you only get one chance per message that you were communicating to say something like, hey, of everything else I've said this morning, what I'm about to say right now is the thing I want you to remember. This is the most important. This is what I want you to take to lunch and conversations. Every 90 seconds, I can't say that in a sermon every 90 seconds i can't say now what i'm about to say is the most important and if you're writing a book or you're writing a letter like paul you can't say this every chapter like hey what i'm about to say right now this is the most important and paul waits until chapter 15 to use this phrase first corinthians is 16 chapters long and there's a lot of stuff going on in first corinthians and it could make sense that in chapter one you say it from the get-go like hey this is it this is what is most important so the rest of the stuff I write in this letter here's what I want you to remember but instead he waits until almost the very end of it to say hey here is the first most here is first importance utmost important the thing I want you to remember more than anything else and it's this it's four things that Christ died according to the scriptures In other words, Christ died, and if you want to research it or you want to do a 15-week study on it, we can go through the Bible to see all the places that talk about how there needed to be an ultimate sacrifice. Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And this is an important part of the whole Easter weekend, because the story of Jesus dying wasn't that he died and then 10 minutes later God resuscitated him and brought him back to life It that he was buried, he was placed in grave clothes, he was placed in a grave, the tomb was sealed, he was dead, and he was treated like a dead man, placed in a tomb, tomb was sealed, he was buried, and he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now in just a few verses after that, Paul tells you he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to others, he appeared to around 500 people. And then Paul says, last but not least, he appeared to me. So here's Paul saying in chapter 15, if everything else happens in the letter, this is what needs to guide your life. This is the anchor for your life death, burial, resurrection. Jesus appeared and continues to appear to people. This is it, this is the anchor. 1 Corinthians 15 is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible about the resurrection of Jesus. 58 58 verses. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in like verse 12, you just get these places like, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and in verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith, like it doesn't exist. In 1 Corinthians 15 is where Paul says in verse 25, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the very last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's not Satan. It's not evil. It's death. 1 Corinthians 15 is where it talks about the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So once a year. When we're back at my parents' house on the other side of Fort Worth and I visit the grave of my sister and I usually go by myself and I either stand or I sit on a bench that's nearby and the only thing I take with me is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there by her grave where she was buried, I read all 58 verses. And I sit there in prayer to God as I reflect on the power of the resurrection and what it means for the entire world. Because sometimes I need to be in a place of death to remind me of the life we have in Jesus. I need to be in a place of death where I can be reminded that this is not how the story ends. Like We are called now into this resurrection power and this resurrection life. There was a preaching professor years ago who he would teach his students that there have been two great revolutions in the history of the world. And you can argue for a lot of them. He said there have been two. And the greatest revolution in the history of the world is Jesus. Jesus brought the greatest revolution ever. But the second were the first ever farmers. We don't know who they are. We don't know who they were. But the first ever farmers, because you know when God created humans, and then humans are removed from the garden, and they start doing their thing all over the place, like they're, they're roaming everywhere. They're hunters. It's like every day was a day trying to survive. That's what they would do. You would find animals. You would eat them. You would eat some plants, but then you have to go to another place. And that first farmer, the first person, who tried to convince everyone else around them, like, hey, what if we did this? What if we settle in a place and we take these seeds and we bury them in the ground and then we wait patiently wait to see if anything will happen? Who's with me? Because to put anything in the ground, I mean, it's like you're getting rid of it. And those first people who ate the fruit and then thought, maybe we can take seeds. And bury them in the ground as if they die, and then trust that there's something that can come from that will, that will bring life to us and to the entire world. So, the preaching professor argued that it's one of the greatest revolutions in the history of the world. And now we know that the story that we hang on to is a story of Jesus being placed in the ground where he died, and from that has come fruit that blesses the entire world. And this is what investment means right? That we invest in others in a way that we are willing to die because we want to see the next generation and we want to see people come to life. Now, Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1, here's what Paul says. And let's just stay on this slide right here just for a moment. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Like, as you see me pursue Jesus, I want you to pursue Jesus. And in chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says, for what I received I passed on to you as first importance. Now, I want to use this as a bracket for just a few moments, all right? So chapter 11, verse 1, what Paul says is, hey, as you see me pursue Christ, you pursue Christ. In chapter 15, verse 3, hey, and let me just remind you, the matters of first importance is this. Death, burial, resurrection, Jesus appeared. And in between those two things, you have four chapters in which Paul talks a lot about the Sunday worship service or when the church gathers on the weekend or when the church gathers on Sunday. It's the most Paul talks about what we would, I guess, call like corporate worship or the Sunday assembly anywhere else in all of his books. In chapter 11, he talks about praying and prophesying in public and what it needs to look like when men do that and what it needs to look like when women do that. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not a matter of if women were praying and prophesying in public, it's what they were supposed to wear while they did. And then Paul talks about communion. Because apparently in their church... The way they were doing communion, it was so messed up, they're not waiting on people, and they were forsaking, like, they were forsaking the message of God, and the way they were doing it. I mean, communion in the early church, a lot of times it would be around a table, or there would be a lot of dialogue that would happen, and you had rich people who were coming together, and they were enjoying the agape feast, and they're not waiting on the poor people, who most of them were probably slaves, and the poor are showing up, and there's hardly any food left, and other people had eaten most of it, and Paul's like, you have gotten communion wrong, because communion is about the Body of Christ coming together and collectively examining ourselves with God and with each other and reminding each other what it means to live out the message of the body that was broken of Jesus and the cup that was the blood that was poured out. And then in chapter 12, Paul talks about how gifts are given to everybody. Everybody in the church has a gift, and we, we're edified because of these gifts. And Paul talks about there being one body, which in 1 Corinthians he's writing to a church that they were a bunch of bodies, super divided. And now he's trying to remind them that in and through Jesus, there was one body. You were called into one family. And then in chapter 13, it's this whole chapter of love, which Paul did not write for weddings, but it's fine if you choose to use it in a wedding. It's about the church being reminded that as we try to live out life, love has to be in its proper place. We minister and we live together from a place of love. And then in chapter 14, there are two specific spiritual gifts that have been abused in the church of speaking in tongues and prophecy. So Paul spends an entire chapter talking to them about how prophecy and how tongues need to be used to edify the body. So after four chapters of walking people through praying and prophesying and communion and what it means to be one body and not a divided body and what it means to honor spiritual gifts in a church, then Paul says, here's a matter of first importance. Now at the end of chapter 14, there are two verses. And here's what they are. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And in verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. How many of you have ever heard this reference in a church before, right? How many of your parents use this of why you need to clean your room growing up? Like if, if God does things in an orderly fashion, your room and the dishwasher need to be done in an orderly fashion too, All right. And a lot of times this has been quoted in the church, of why we either don't need a clap or we don't need to have moments when there seems to be confusion or movement. Things need to be done orderly. But here's what orderly looked like in 1 Corinthians 14. Just look at this. If you go to this, next, this part right here. Beginning in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you or everyone who has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an, or an interpretation, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two. At the most, three should speak one at a time. Someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak. And the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn so that everybody may be instructed and encouraged. Now, when people in churches have often quoted, we do things in an orderly fashion. Rarely do we read all of what, according to Paul, orderly fashion meant. Or if you got a song, we'll sing your song. Three people can speak in tongues as long as there's an interpreter. Up to three people can prophesy, and if someone's prophesying, even if it's really good, and someone who is sitting down has a prophecy, they get to take the place of the person who was prophesying. Like, that doesn't sound like order at all, but according to how Paul's talking about it, what he was giving them, what's much more, it was much more orderly than what they were experiencing in their church. All right, so what I'm about to say right now is what I want you to remember of everything else I've said this morning, okay? And especially for our graduates, and this is true for everybody, but especially for you. Like in 1 Corinthians 15 through through 5, this is the matter of first importance. Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised to life, and he appears. This is the anchor and foundation of faith. And culture is going to do everything they can to tell you that this is a truth among many other truths. Like, this is a truth you can hold on to. But there are a lot of other stories you need to buy into as well. And it could be good stuff, like being a contributing citizen or being a person of benevolence and service and just making an investment in the world. But the ultimate anchor in your life is this. Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised to life, He appears, and now you live the rest of your life in response to that. And a lot of times churches, and we've done this for 2,000 years, we will get so caught up in issues of chapter 11 through 14 that we will forget chapter 15 through through 5. That we'll get so caught up in issues that are happening in the church, in worship services, that it will become almost all we talk about and we will forget what it means to live from a place of death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus appearing. And that that is what holds all of us together through it all. So resist any temptation in your life to keep you from this anchor. And don't go through life just living by what drives you emotionally or what makes you comfortable, but what is it that keeps you rooted? The San Diego chicken. Maybe something that some of you have seen before. San Diego chicken has been around since the 70s. Back in the 80s the San Diego Chicken was named one of the most one, one of the 100 most influential sports people in the world. And can you imagine if you were a professional athlete and you were like 105 and a chicken beat you out? This is arguably the most famous mascot In in the 80s, you'll see if you go to this next image, San Diego chicken was, I mean, it's been able to shake hands with presidents. And then here's what made this chicken so famous. He would go around stands and not just that he would eat babies, but he would, he would interact with people in the stands. And then he ended up going down on the field for baseball games. I mean, football games. This has become one of the most famous mascots. Now, uh, just so we don't see that image for too long, will you go back to that first one of just a San Diego chicken? This guy was this mascot for over 40 years and recently he was, in a, he, was, he was sharing a story of what it's been like to be the San Diego chicken and here's what he said, not too long ago, I had to confess this, I had to confess to having lost most of my life in that chicken suit and as he put it, it was this, I'm realizing I have plenty of chicken stories but no Ted stories. Most people want me to be the chicken. They don't want me to be Ted. And in life, it can become really easy to try to be something you're not, or to be something or someone other people want us to be, and not who it is that God has created us to be. So will you bow your heads? For God is, we spend a few more moments together today and we leave this place here in a few minutes remind us of what we have been rooted in, remind us of what is most important, that the event 2,000 years ago of death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus, you're appearing and you're reigning in our lives today is the most important story this world has ever experienced, and may we live and respond from that place. <coughs> Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite Kayla Pinkle, one of our graduating seniors, to come and join me for just a moment. We're going to have a brief Q&A, then come to the Lord's table together in a minute. And Caleb, I'm glad you said yes, because you and I, we share something in common, right? You were born in Abilene, weren't you? Yeah, I was born in Abilene, so that's why we're made different, you and me. We're just, we're just different. We're Abileneans from Texas. I've known you your entire life. You're the only graduating senior I can say, it, say that about. I've known you since you were born. And something else we have in common is we're both your dad's favorite people. I mean, you're his favorite Hinkle. I'm his favorite Sycamore View person. So we're both favorites.
1: and Grace is his favorite child. <laughs> and no one would argue, right? No, <laughs> no one would argue. Definitely not.
0: Hey, uh, Caleb, let me. Uh, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll we'll enjoy some time at the table. But how have you? How has Sycamore View taught you to live in your story and not to be someone else?
1: there are about, there are hundreds of different things that I could talk about for this, but I think the number one thing for me, and I think for a lot of other graduates today, uh, I think <clears throat> that it's how the youth group best pushed us out of our comfort zone. So for the last six years, like we have all been taught to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, whether it be like with mission trips or spiritual exercises, it's just all of these things combined, um, they have a huge part in shaping how we are as people and how our faith is.
0: Have you seen like real authentic faith lived out in and through this church in your life?
1: Uh, definitely the adults. I've seen this through all the adults that, that surround all of us in our time in the youth group and just around church. <clears throat> they have big they have big impacts on all of us. They show up week in and week out and they seek like a real authentic relationship with us and they actually care about they actually care about how our faith is. Like some, I could name hundreds of specific people, but like Chris and Patrick and Fawn Taylor, they've all been very influential in my life. I've seen a real authentic faith live through them. Yeah.
0: I mean, I just, I wanted to just ask you this question because I think it's good for some people just to hear you or someone speaking to it. But I mean, for you, a graduating senior about to embark on this next new
1: fun season of your life, like what gives you hope for your generation? Um, again, the thing that gives me hope is the adults that pour time into us. Um, we've seen many that intentionally spend time with us, and they just pour into our lives. And that I know because the people that we have been surrounded by, I know that these, these are the people whose lives we can live into, and we can use them as an example. And I just know that because we were surrounded by them, that we will be okay.
0: Yeah. And man, I I just want to thank you for, when we moved here, you were four. True, it was one. Noah wasn't even a thought yet, right? Uh, But the way you have poured into both of my kids and have been a role model for them, I thank you. I'm proud of you. I can't wait to see what God does with you in the years to come. So in this church, we take the bread and the cup every Sunday. This is a practice of ours so uh, just a few instructions, because we may have some people who haven't been in this church in a, in a while. We we have six tables in this room, and here in just a moment, Caleb's going to pray. And we have prepackaged communion on those tables, and maybe you got some of those before you came in. And after Caleb prays, we're just going to have a moment where you are invited to go to a table where we have the bread and the cup there for you to either take by yourself or to take in community. They're, most Sundays now, we'll have family or families or friends or, or both who— We'll take communion together as they pray and just reflect on the, the bread and, and the cup. And Kay, the one reason that I, there, there are a lot of reasons like I want like, your age group, and, and for all people, like stay connected to the church. And I mean, th- th- there are reasons like, man, I, just, I feel like when the church is at its best, it is one of the greatest instruments of the goodness of God for the entire world. And there's so much the church, the local church, can do when we are, when we are together. But another is like sacraments. Like you can't, like a sacrament like Bread in the Cup is not something you can take on your own for the rest of your life. It's meant to be experienced in community. And I know sometimes it can feel like just uh, something we do every week that maybe because we do it every week, it loses its meaning. But there's the argument that because we do it every week, this is what roots us in the story that we have committed our lives to, that we are reminded in this moment of death, burial, resurrection, and the hope that we get to live with every day. So if you'll pray over the bread and the cup, and then we'll have a few minutes where you are invited as a church to move to those tables. And uh, if I can get Shepherd A, the shepherd who is up front, if you'll go ahead, Patrick, I think it's you this morning. If there's anything you want to bring before the church for prayer, Patrick's going to be right up here to my
1: right to
0: receive you uh, after Caleb Brace.
1: Please bye. Dear God, thank you for bringing us all together today. Thank you for our time in the youth group and how it shaped our lives. Thank you for the gift of your son and what that means for us. Thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection and the hope it gives us. We remember all you have done for us and we praise your name. Let us be your hands and feet in all we do. In your son's name I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. You're invited to the bread and the cup.